All right, so here's the deal. We've got on the table outside some free resources. If you guys saw these, these are all, uh, we've given out, there's three different ones that are orange. These are all tech-related, technology-related, and then these are just general parenting issues, like seven steps to capture a child's heart. That's going to kind of go along with the things that we talked about this morning. Um, these are all free. And uh, each one of them leads you, leads you through different topics regarding your family. Uh, in the last uh, eight years that we've been creating these, we have now given out over uh, 22,000 of these free resources. Uh, we've never solicited for money uh, from people. Uh, we've never done a fundraiser in our ministry. And yet uh, all the money that comes in every, just about every month, we get checks in the mail. It's the craziest thing. Or just when I go places, people just hand me money. And we use 100% of that money. None of it goes to me. Every bit of it goes to creating resources for parents just to give out for free. And so it's really great for me when I get to go to like other small churches that don't have like a staff. Like, you know, when you're, when you're a, a sizable church with a church staff, we forget that over 80% of churches in America don't have a paid staff. They're just volunteers. And so they can't afford to have someone come in, you know? And so I get to go to places or they'll call and go, heck, how can we get, how can we get your stuff? I'll just send it to you, you know? And so we send this stuff. Or when I go to other countries, you know, where they don't have these kind of things, we can just take them and give them away. And so basically, you guys are welcome to get these and you get to be blessed because somebody else has already blessed us so we get to pass it on to you. So those are out there. If you could just get one per family or if you have a friend that you want to give these to that's not here, you're welcome to get some to give to them also, all right? Um, are, are there folks from other churches here or everyone from this church? Okay, other church, yeah. So um, we actually uh, have these available that we sell them in packs of uh, $15 per hundred. And so a lot of churches use these as family resources in their church. You know, so when someone's coming and they want, you know, some of the visitor and they want resources about family or something, that your church could have these available just to say, oh, here's some stuff or doing counseling that you're here, take this with you kind of a thing, all right? So anyway, those are available. You're welcome to get those. And then there are two books out there. One is How You Always Meant to Parent. And this is six principles on how to leave a spiritual legacy in the life of your child. A lot of the stuff we dealt with this morning uh, came out of this book, as well as this, the message I'll be teaching tomorrow about uh, leaving a spiritual legacy from Deuteronomy 6 uh, came out of this book. And I know that most of you guys, most everywhere I go, people come because of the technology information. And that's like the hot topic everyone wants to know about. Uh, and certainly it is a big issue in our lives. It's a big felt need, but this is not an eternal need. This is gonna fade and pass and change you know, every 18 months. Whereas this is really about how do you create an ongoing laying a spiritual foundation in your child's life when they're two years old, four years, six, six years old? How do you start a spiritual relationship with them so that by the time your kids get to be teenagers, they don't go through that angsty phase of like, my mom doesn't get me, my dad doesn't understand me. Um, I don't think my kids are perfect. They're really not. But neither one of my kids went through that phase. They just, they grew up in a home where they love having us. They love having us around. And I consider it such an honor um, how often my kids are in college. I say kids, they're grownups. That my grownups in college call me and want to tell me what's happening in their life. Or my daughter, last weekend, I'm speaking at another conference. 
somewhere last weekend. My daughter calls me, and of course, if they call me, no matter what, I, like, I'll find a reason to take a break so I can go feel the phone call, right? And my daughter goes, hey, Dad, I'm sitting in my dorm room. I have a question about John, about John chapter 15. What do you think, Jesus, blah, 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 blah? And I'm like starting to cry, going, wow, she didn't call her small group. She didn't call her small group leader. She didn't call her youth pastor. She called her dad. Like, that is just so cool. And um, so anyway, so I'm really grateful for my relationship with them. You're welcome to get those. Um, this one is 15. Uh, this one is 18. This book, uh, Tech Savvy Parenting, I really wrote it with dads in mind because every page has pictures on it. And the longest chapter, the longest chapter is eight pages. So really like you could read, all, exactly. Like you could read a whole chapter in about 10 minutes and be the reading rainbow rock star of your family, you know? And um, anyway, but it, it covers way more than we're gonna be able to cover in an hour and a half, you know, session in here right now. Uh, and uh, matter of fact, we, we're, we've done three updates on the book. Every time we do new printing, we do updates to it because the information changes so much. Um, anyway, this one is 18. And this one is 15, or you can buy them both together for 30 and save a few dollars. Um, you don't have to buy books. You can just get the free stuff if you want. But if you buy books, then my kids get to eat. And so, Jim, whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do with that obedience, I, I trust you, okay? And uh, we can do check, cash, credit card, O positive blood, whatever, whatever you want, okay? Um, and I know that there's some of you that got this book for free um, for registering, now, this is only for those people that got it for free, okay? That if you would like to buy an additional copy uh, for, like, if you don't want both books or if you want to buy both books as the bundle and save a few dollars and you just give your copy away, you can. But instead of 18, if you want to buy an additional copy, if you tell me I already got one when I registered, but I'd like to buy a copy to give away, then I'll do it for 15, right? So just to save you a few dollars. But they're available also at Barnes & Noble or Lifeway or any place that you want to steal books. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in. We're going to, this is going to be uh, good stuff, right? Uh, all about technology and our kids and just, you know, I think every generation has like uh, kind of a, a thing, a quality that represents that generation, you know, and we're going to, we're going to look back on this generation and we're going to call them the wireless generation because they've, your kid has always been wired. They've never not known life without technology. It's almost like your child was born and the doctor cut the umbilical cord and attached a Wi-Fi cable to your child, you know, because they've been wired their whole life. You know, they just, they've always had this stuff around them. And the reality is, is that your children and your grandchildren know how to use this stuff way better than you do. Yes. I mean, we just got to admit that as parents. That doesn't make you inefficient. I mean, that doesn't make you deficient or bad or an idiot or anything like that. It just, technology is native to our kids. It's intuitive to them. They just know what to do with it. Your child can walk into Best Buy or, you know, or someplace where they you know, have game consoles set up. They can walk into GameStop and you could take your five-year-old in there. They've never seen it before. They've never played it before. They just walk in and just start playing it like it's their best friend, like they've had it their whole life. And you walk in and I'm terrified to touch the thing. You know, like I, I don't even know what to do with this anymore. Like game controllers don't have two buttons anymore. Now they have 14 buttons. They're all color-coded and, and X's and Y's and Z's. And I have no idea what any of this means. You know, and I quit playing video games with my son by the time I was, he was 10 because he always kicked my butt every time he played 
played. And it's no fun being a grown man getting your butt kicked by a 10-year-old, you know, playing video games. Because they just get this stuff and we don't. Like, honestly, moms, be honest with me. Any mom here ever gone to your kid and said, hey, could you fix this for me, please? Anybody here? Yeah, like, get this. You're supposed to be like the gatekeeper of your family protecting your children, but yet your kids know how to use this stuff better. Like, tomorrow night, I'll be with your teenagers, you know, at the youth group talking about this stuff. And I will ask them, so I'll see how many hands go up. I ask them everywhere I go, say, how many of you guys know your mom or your dad's passwords for their social media? And all the kids raise their hand. And I'm like, this is crazy. How do you know your kids, your parents' passwords? Like you can change all their information. Uh, Because our kids just, they know what to do with this stuff way better than we do uh, because it's intuitive to them. Uh, They use it much more often than we do as well. 94% of all teenagers in America now have their own cell phone. Three out, of, three out of four of all middle schoolers own their own cell phone. And now I would say it's about 44% of all preteens own their own cell phone. And I get it. I really do. I understand why last year in America, you know, we spent about $14 billion on buying cell phones for our kids. I understand why 10-year-olds need cell phones. It's because they are very important people who need who need access to other very important people, right? I, now, I'm not a very funny person. I don't tell a lot of jokes. So if you, if you didn't laugh, Jim, you missed your chance, okay? All right, that, that was your shot right there. So um, yeah, I, yeah I, it really is crazy when you think about why we are spending, I don't think there's a magic age in which kids need to get a cell phone. Five years ago, the average age was 14. As of this last year, it's now 11. And so we're seeing just in the five years time, what's happening is it's becoming younger and younger in which we're buying kids' phones. And um, let's just call them what they really are. I don't know why we even call them cell phones anymore. Let's just call it what it is. It's a mini computer. You know, because this iPhone 8 has a faster processor than my MacBook computer that's running this presentation. It has more memory than that computer. I mean, this, this thing is powerful. And what we're really doing is we're putting a mini computer that gives our, our, you know, our children, our 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds access uh, to the whole world. Um, what are the, what's, the, what's the reasons why we would buy cell phones for our kids? Yes, who said that? Safety. So we can keep our kids safe, right? And what else? Somebody else tell me. Yeah, because we don't have a landline, right? So, so if I want to contact my kid, that if I can keep up with them, then they need a phone and I need a phone. So we buy phones so we can keep up with our kids and so we can keep them safe. So we can, so we can know where you are, right? Isn't that why we buy phones for our kids? At least that's the rationale we tell ourselves when we're forking over the $400 for the next phone for this 12-year-old. You know? And um, I mean, think about that. Do you remember ever being 12 and getting a device that costs $400 as a gift from your parents? But yet we just do it willy-nilly on any, not even a special occasion. Just, oh, you need one. Okay. And so... Uh, now we're buying these expensive phones for 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds so that uh, I can keep up with you, so that I know where you are, and so that I can keep you safe. Now, how many of you guys remember, I was, I'm older than I look. Again, I was a kid in the 70s, a teenager in the 80s. I realize there are some of you that are going to go, you know, dude, I was like having children by the 80s. But nonetheless, do you remember growing up? I remember when I was a kid growing up, I would wake up in the mornings and ride my bicycle three miles that way to the park or three miles that way to the library. And as long as I was home before the streetlight came on, mom was totally fine. 
Like, it was like going to your job. Woke up in the morning, eat some cocoa pebbles. What are you doing today, son? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to go for a ride and I'll be back at dinner time. You know, like no one, there was no call home or check in with me throughout the day. It's just, we're going out and being kids, right? And now we won't even let our children ride their bicycles around the block without a GPS tracker, right? I think in part because we watch way too much CSI TV. So we live in constant fear that something bad is going to happen. Now I'm being somewhat facetious because it is our job to be uh, prudent and to be wise, to be responsible with our kids. But I also just make a choice. I'm not going to have a posture of fear, whether fearful of someone else hurting my child or even fearful that my kid is up to no good, that I'm not going to have a posture of fear when it comes to being a parent. So we say that we buy these phones so that now if our children ride their bicycles three miles away, um, I know where you are, I can keep up with you, and I can keep you safe. But let's look at what this device does. Less than 10% of parents actually set any kind of parental controls on the devices we give to our children. It's not just cell phones, but on gaming devices, held home game, handheld devices like you know, your, uh, uh, your PSPs, your, um, your Nintendos, all, all those hand gaming devices, your, uh, your uh, Kindles, iPads, iPods, all those kind of things. Less than 10% of parents set any kind of parental controls on them. That means 90% of kids with these devices, there is nothing that's tracking them. There's nothing that's keeping them safe to that's going to keep them from accessing inappropriate content or someone else accessing your children's content. So less than 10% of us are taking advantage of that. That means 90% of kids are being given devices that give them access to anyone, anywhere, any time of the day. Doesn't it really sound like the antithesis of keeping our children, grandchildren safe? When really what we're doing is we're giving these devices where uh, we're giving away just incredible amounts of data about our lives and our kids' lives. I mean, for instance, how many of you, as grownups in this room, how many of you have, um, have Facebook or Instagram app on your phone? Raise your hand. Okay, so let's say that you're a child. So let me use you as an example, all right? So let me show you how this works. I'm gonna open up my Instagram. So as I open up my Instagram, do you do, you do know, don't you, that Facebook owns Instagram? Facebook also owns WhatsApp. So WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook are the three most popular worldwide uh, social media apps, all right? So let's say I open up my Instagram, right? And I'm just scrolling through. And you know how you'll have ads on Instagram every once in a while. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to get that. I forgot I need to buy that. And so I click on the ad, and it takes me to Amazon. And so I'm going to buy something on Amazon. Well, by the fact that I am using the Instagram app or Facebook app on my phone, I have, <coughs> I have and you have given Facebook permission to look at everything that you look at on Amazon, Etsy, eBay. And when I open up uh, my Safari, which is the, the internet browser, when I open up Safari and I browse around and I'm looking at different things, I've also given Facebook to look at everything that I'm looking at on my Safari. Or if you're using an Android phone on your Chrome, which is the browser on that, that phone. Does that make sense? So it, like you, you yourself, just because you have the Facebook and Instagram app on your phone, they, you've given them permission to look at everything that you're looking at on the internet and everything that you're shopping for. That's insane, isn't it? 
that kind of information that we're just giving away. So now let's go to an 11-year-old. So your 11-year-old is out looking at things on the internet and your 11-year-old is on, on social media. That means they're looking at everything that your kid is looking at as well and they're tailoring ads to your kid and they're sending information to your kid. And I, I just think that a child does not have the life experience to understand how that information is being shared and potentially could be used against them at some point in time. And it's our job as parents, as grandparents, to, to be involved, to know what, who, what they're sharing, who they're connected to, and to make sure that these devices are safe for our kids. Uh, the average teenager, uh, let's skip them. The average teenager sends over 3,000 text messages every single month. Now, if you're in the age demographic that I am in, we send between three and 400 text messages a month. Now, I'm between 40 and 50, and that's as, that's as specific as we're going to get, Kristen, okay? But, if you're at, uh, but every, every decade older, uh, it's about another 15% less every month until finally when you're in your you know, 70s, you're sending about a dozen text messages because that's all your arthritic fingers can handle each month, you know? But the point is, is that if you're raising a kid today, and you have a 11, 12, 13-year-old in your home that has a cell phone and they're texting and they're sending 3,000 a month and you're sending 300 a month, they're using this 100 times more proficiently than you are. You see this? Like they're using it that much more often than you are, in part because our, our kids text way differently than we do. You know what I'm saying? Like for instance, Jim, let's say that you sent me a text message and you said, Brian, I really enjoyed the presentation. I'd like to get together and have coffee sometime, period. I'd say, that's a great idea, Jim, exclamation point. How about this Thursday, question mark. And you say, that's great. I'll meet you at uh, Atlanta Bread at 1130, period. That's a whole conversation, isn't it? With nouns and pronouns and punctuation marks because that's how the English language works, isn't it, Kristen? But no, not with our kids at all because they have whole conversations with each other without using any words or any letters whatsoever. Like they can have whole conversations just sending emojis back and forth to each other. And yet somehow they're supposed to know what, they know what it means, you know what I'm saying? Because they created this whole language, right? Like that's why emojis were made with so teenage, because teenagers made up the emoji language so they can have conversations without us knowing really what's being said. Did you catch my drift? I'm not saying every emoji is bad out there, but for instance, if an eggplant emoji pops up on your kid's phone or a text message, there's a reason why there's an eggplant emoji there, and you probably needed to question what's happening with your kid. You catch my drift? Some of you are laughing because you know what the eggplant emoji is. Most of you are going, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. So just go look it up yourself later, all right? So uh, anyway, my daughter, I sent her a text message. She was in high school a few years ago. And I sent her a text message and I said, hey, I'm gonna pick you up today instead of mom and we can go to Panera and get a smoothie and hang out together. And she sent me a smiley face with its tongue hanging out and a, and a birthday present and a shooting star. And I went and picked her up and I said, why didn't you respond to my message? And she said, I did. I said, no, you sent me a smiley face with a tongue hanging out and a birthday present and a shooting star. And she said, and? And I said, and I don't speak hieroglyphics. I don't know what any of this means, but she does because they made up this whole language. And I said, what's up with this smiley face? And she was like, well, dad, my tongue is hanging out because I'm ready to get my smoothie. I mean, and I, I said, well, what was the birthday present for? And she was like, dad, you said you're gonna buy me a smoothie. 
And that's like buy me a present. So here's my present. And then I'm ready to drink my present. I was like, well, why did you send me a shooting star? She goes, because I was excited. Like, how am I supposed to know that? But she knew that and any of her friends would have known that. And I have no idea what this means, you know? And, and, but, but they do, but guys, and, and oh, oh my gosh, mom, if you want to know why your kids don't respond to your text messages, it's because you text whole paragraphs to your children. Yes, I'm telling you, mom, if you send a text message to your child and they have to scroll to read your whole message, you're not texting the right way, right? So when you're a kid, I'll, I'll ask your teenagers this question tomorrow night, and I promise they will totally throw you under the bus because I will ask them the question, have you ever sent your parents a text message? And maybe it just says, mom, would it be okay if I stayed out 15 minutes later? That's a very easy question to answer, isn't it? All it requires is a yes or a no. Or if you want to be really hip, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, or just a Y or an N. But instead, your teenager is going to stare for 15 minutes at the three bubbles at the bottom of the screen, wondering what is she possibly typing. And then finally, the message comes back. And you have said, well, I don't know. It's a school night. Did you finish your homework? And whose house are you at right now? Did they feed you? Oh, I forgot to tell you what happened to your grandmother this afternoon. And four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth to this continent. And that's why your kids don't respond to your text messages, right? Because we, we've got to, guys, we've got to engage in their world. Like this is their world, right? It's not our world. We don't understand this stuff. And so we've got to use it in ways that make sense to them. Every generation has to adapt, right? We have to figure out how do we integrate this stuff into our communication skills, you know, in, into our parenting tool belt. And so sometimes, you know, the last thing that you want is your kid, whenever your name pops up on a phone call, the last thing that you want is your child to go, oh, my mom's calling. Like, wouldn't it be great is if whenever mom's name pops up on the screen, your kid goes, oh, my mom's calling me. You're like, because it's going to be good. But instead, they know it's going to be what? Where are you? How come you're not home? You know, it's going to be something bad. Because our kids, they expect that we're going to use this stuff to keep up with you, keep track of you, know where you are all the time. But what if instead, maybe sometimes you just send them a funny picture? You know, I saw this picture. What do you think about this? Last night, I'm driving to the airport to get my luggage because I lost my luggage. And there's a song on the radio. I sent a picture to my daughter. Have you heard this song yet? Oh my gosh, it's so great. You got to hear this song. And she responded back. No, I haven't heard that. I'm going to listen to it right now. Oh my gosh, that's a great song, dad. You know, just a conversation about nothing. A conversation about nothing with my teenager because I just want her to know that dad sometimes thinks about her and can just talk about silly stuff. Oh, okay, thank you. Or send your kid a Bible verse. Copy a Bible verse out of your Bible app and just send it to them. Hey, I saw this verse this morning. I read it. It made me think about you. Or here's a silly quote or a quote pick or just something. So it's not always just being an authority with your text messages. Does that make sense? Just relate to them in their world. Now, don't do this every single day. And please, don't go overboard with emojis because then your kid, it'll be just as bad. They're like, my mom thinks she's so funny. Look at this. She, oh my gosh, 18 smiley faces. Really, mom? One will do, all right? Um, uh, 68% of millennials uh, now suffer from a disorder called nomophobia, which is the fear of being without your cell phone. 
Now, I know some of you are going, that's absolutely ridiculous. Who can't be without their cell phone? Oh yeah, I know. You're just as bad as your kids are. You know, some of you have found yourself like on a, I don't know, maybe a Sunday morning or on the way to work or something. You're like, something feels off today. Did I put underwear on? I don't know. Is the, the equator tilt off its axis? Something feels wrong. And then you realize, oh no, I left my cell phone on the vanity at home. And then you start the mental gymnastics with yourself going, well, I'm just going to be gone two hours. It's not that big a deal. I'll just get it later. And then before you know it, you're doing a U-turn on the four-way out here to go back and get your cell phone because we're just as addicted as our kids are. Yes, we are. Honestly, our children, our children learn behaviors by watching us. And when they see that we can't put our cell phones away, then they learn that, well, then that's just acceptable behavior is to always have your cell phone out. You know? and, and so we gotta find a rhythm in our families when we don't have to always be connected. 70, almost three out of four of all kids are now sleeping with a, uh, a cell phone or a device you know, in their bed with them. Now, let me help you understand why this is so potentially dangerous. Uh, Roughly 44% of all teenagers or or kids with devices are losing on average one hour of sleep a night because of late night texting. So let me tell you what's happening in your kid's brain and body because some of you, your kids will say, but mom, I just fall asleep easier if I can just watch some YouTube videos. Or I just like listening to music when I'm going to sleep. I'm not really texting or I just, you know, in case my friends need to, you know, contact me, I just want it there. Or my phone is my alarm clock, so I need it in bed with me. Or whatever reason they come up with why they need that screen in their bed with them at night, all right? So really what's happening is two different things. Is let's say that uh, your kid, uh, bedtime is at nine o'clock. And so they get in bed, they turn off the lights. Now they're in a dark room, but they're staring at a white light. You know what I mean by that? They're staring at the white light on a screen in a dark room. So two different things are happening. We know these scientifically, psychologically, what's happening to your kid's brain and body and to our, ours when we're in a dark room staring at a white light. Is that one, your child, when you're in a dark room staring at a white light, your brain creates a chemical called serotonin. And serotonin does several different things, but one of the things that it does is it helps our bodies regulate the difference between day and night. And so now your child is laying in bed in a dark room, staring at a white light. The brain's getting a chemical that's telling them it's daytime, don't fall asleep, you don't wanna miss this. So now they can't fall asleep because their brain is creating a chemical that's telling their body, you can't fall asleep right now. The second thing that's happening is when you're in a dark room staring at a white light is when your child is texting. Now, if they're texting in their bedroom at night, they're probably not just texting a friend. They're probably group texting, you know, on Instagram or Snapchat. You know what that means? So they're texting, you know, eight people at a time in a group or 10 at a time, so which exponentially increases the likelihood that they're getting a response about every 18 seconds. Does that make sense? because they're grouping, texting so many people at once. So we know there was a study that came out of Cambridge University just last year where they did these little brain electrodes where they can kind of check your brain activity and find out what's happening at different stimulus. And they had, some, they had uh, over 500 people, everyone from children to older folks who took part in this study. And what they found out is that whenever our butts vibrate, you know what that means, right? When your butt vibrates, like, you know, it's happening when your butt vibrates, right? You're getting a text message. Like, you can always tell when you're at dinner with someone and their butt vibrates, right? 
because they get that look on their face like a dog that just saw a squirrel. Like your kid is mid-sentence, like, oh my gosh, mom, at school this week? You know, and, and uh, so let's say, anyway, what they found out is that whenever you get a text message, is that our brains release just a few drops of dopamine. It's a chemical in our brains that goes throughout our body. And it's the same chemical that's released from our brains into our bodies. Whenever you are speeding down the interstate or you're at the casino or you're smoking, you're running down the soccer field, when you're gambling, you're having sex, like all activities that are, that are uh, um, uh, risky activities or high adrenaline activities. Does that make sense? that your brain releases a chemical that's telling your body, this feels awesome, this is amazing, do more of this, take more of this, drink more of this. And so now, let's go back to your kid. Your kid is in a dark room staring at a white light. One chemical is telling them, don't fall asleep. The other chemical is telling them, you are awesome. You are so popular, everyone loves you. Everyone wants to hear from you. Isn't this awesome? So now, it's, uh, it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and your kid finally falls asleep at one o'clock when they're literally exhausted and their body can't stay awake any longer. I mean, I know this from personal experience because I, I'm on the road almost three out of four weekends a month. I'm on the road staying in a different hotel and I'll wake up at 2 a.m. I'll pick up my phone to see what time it is. And then I'm like, well, I'm just gonna get on Facebook for just a minute. And then what happens? Yeah, before you know it, it's four o'clock. Yeah, because we just, you get sucked into this stuff. It's so highly addictive. And so now your kid, it's one o'clock in the morning. They finally fall asleep when they are physically exhausted. Then the alarm clock goes off at what for a school morning? 6.45, seven o'clock. And now your kid comes to the breakfast table. They're grumpy. They're irritable. They're disrespectful. They're unfocused. And so what do we conclude? Oh, my kid's got ADHD. Now, listen, don't misunderstand. I, I, I believe that ADHD is real. Just spend some time with me, Jim. You'll discover really quickly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's real. It's all over me, right? Um, it, it's real. But I also know that we're the most overly medicated nation in the world when it comes to our kids. And I think sometimes, just sometimes, maybe we're misreading some of the symptoms. That maybe the grumpiness, the unfocusedness, the irritability, the laziness is not a learning disability. Maybe it's that we as parents, you as a mom and dad, have sabotaged your children's sleep cycle. And then it, and now it is physically, mentally, and emotionally sabotaged their productivity the next day. The American Pediatric Society used to recommend eight hours a day for good mental and physical health for children. Now they're saying it's nine hours a day but we know that kids with screens in their bedrooms get on average six and a half. So basically you're cutting in half your children's ability to focus. I mean, you're cutting in a third your children's ability to focus, to respond in a healthy way to stimulus around them, to be able to finish tasks on time, to be able to listen to your authority, to stay focused in a conversation. I mean, is it really worth that? When I know there's a lot of things that we can't control. I live with the reality, and I hope that you do too, that once your children walk outside of your home, you have lost all control. Does that make sense? That you really cannot control what your 16-year-old son does when he's in that car with his buddies. 
Uh, it doesn't matter if you got a tracker in the car or not. You really cannot control what they're doing in that car or what happens at the party or what's happening in the locker room. So I don't say to scare you. It's just because I want to live in reality. But there are some things we can control. I can control, you can control what they have in their bedroom with them at 11 o'clock at night, can't we? Especially if your child is younger. So what we did in our family, I don't give a whole lot of parenting advice, I, I, in part because I, I, I'm a creator. I don't like advice. Does that make sense? Don't, don't tell me what to do. I, I have a Holy Spirit. He'll tell me, right? So I don't give a lot of advice either, but here's just a couple of things that we did in our family. You're welcome to use them if you want, Okay. So when our kids were little, we had, or younger, we had a time of day and a location boundary when it came to all screens, all right? The location boundary was, I'm sorry, the time of day boundary when our kids were young was one hour before bedtime, all screens go away. As they got older into late middle school and high school, then it was 30 minutes before bedtime, all screens go away. And the reason why we extended it or shortened that amount of time was because a lot of times they needed those devices to do homework or to turn in projects for high school and think, you know, do research and things like that. Uh, but we had on our kids, both of them, their senior year, they each got a laptop for college and we gave it to them at their senior year Christmas. So they had it the last semester of high school. They could get used to using it and we could get everything set up and have it ready for college. So anyway... Um, each of their laptops had a timer boundary on it. It was a software that we used so that at 10 o'clock at night, the laptop would shut itself off. And I remember my son one night, he's a senior in high school. He's working on a research project and he was like, oh my gosh, dad, what? Uh, hey, what? I'm like, what? He goes, my computer just shut off. I said, is it, is it 10 o'clock? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, I said, did you save it? He goes, no. I said, oh, you, you might want to be sure and save that tomorrow night before 10 o'clock. No, I, I, I'm not being a jerk, right? What I'm doing is I'm teaching my son personal responsibility. I'm teaching my son time management, right? Because he's getting ready to go to college into adult world where you don't get a lot of second chances. You don't show up at your job on time. What happens to your job? It goes away, right? If you don't turn a project in on time in college, you don't get second and third chances. Oh, just bring it in the next day. You know, it's just gone. And so what I'm doing, I'm using a very simple thing to teach him personal responsibility and time management. Guess what? He's never forgotten again, right? He remembered. Um, but the reason why we did this is that an hour before bedtime when our kids were young is because we wanted to remove, lessen the adrenaline, lessen the dopamine, all those chemicals that their bodies are creating when they're playing video games all the way up until bedtime or my daughter's in, in the bedroom, you know, texting with her friends all the way up till bedtime. Well, now they're, they're amped up, they're wired up. And so now bedtime can't be a peaceful time where we wanted bedtime to be a time where we can sit and read books together and debrief and talk about school that day and what happened and how your friends are doing. And, and then they could just peacefully fall asleep. But if they're all amped up, then your kids don't want to have a conversation. They don't want you in the bedroom because they're all, you know, antsy. Does that make sense? And so um, anyway, that's what we did was an hour before bedtime, all screens. If we want to watch a movie together, Netflix together, whatever it is, then we'll do that. And then an hour before bedtime, you can start reading books or coloring or doing arts, you know, whatever. You, we'll go run together. We'll go to the gym. Like we'll do other things that don't require you staring at a screen or using a device, right? Now, there's always going to be exceptions, 
I mean, I'm not saying we weren't like anal retentive about this. We weren't legalistic about this. You know, so if we're having like a small group at our house, Bible study at our house or something, we may let all the kids watch a movie, a TV show or something while we're doing this. And that takes them all the way to bedtime. But generally speaking, that was the boundary. An hour or 30 minutes before bedtime, all screens go away. The second thing we had was a location boundary. And for us, it was a box on the kitchen counter. And the location was that all screens go in that box at bedtime. Uh, We have some friends that it's a basket on their bedside table. Uh, We even did for a couple of years, we had a basket by the front door. And when all of my children's teenagers' friends would come in, they would just put their phones in the basket when they come in. Not because we think it's bad having a phone in the house, but it's because we want to focus our time and attention on one another and not on staring at a screen when we're together. I mean, can we admit, we honestly, we get very little time with our kids. I mean, very little quality times with our kids. Especially if you're a single mom who's working, I mean, you, can't, you get a short window, right? I mean, if you're working outside the house, man, you get, you get what, six o'clock to nine o'clock is happy hour, that's it. Do I really wanna give up more of that time with my 14-year-old because she's texting the whole time? And so uh, eliminating those devices and it creates reasonable accountability. So when all the devices go in the box, then I can get up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom and I check the box, make sure everything is where it's supposed to be. And if it's not, then the next day I can just say, hey, I didn't see your phone in the box last night. Where's your, where's your phone? And th- this happened all the time with my kids because sometimes they forget and sometimes they put in their backpack instead. And I would just remind them about the boundary and put your stuff in the box, Right. And so, um, does, is that, does that helpful? Are you guys get this? Now, let me ask you, does that require you to have, to have a master's degree in child psychology to do this? No. Could we agree? Like, this it really is something that you could start doing today. Even if you have teenagers and you've never done this, you could go home and start doing this. Now, I don't recommend you go home and like, here's eight things we're gonna start doing differently in our family. But it could be that, hey guys, we're gonna start making all meals in our family technology free. We're gonna start making our family time technology free. So for instance, when we go out to dinner together and we go to restaurants, I'm I'm gonna spend, either I can spend $40 and look at my daughter text to her friends, or I can spend $40 and have the possibility that we might have a five-minute relevant conversation in the 45 minutes that we're sitting here. And I really, I'll, I'll swap 40 bucks for a five-minute relevant conversation and some FaceTime with my kids, um, but not if we're going to be sitting there, everyone texting on their phones. And I'll, I'll talk, uh, tomorrow, uh, I will say all of this to your teenagers tomorrow night is that your parents cannot control what you do in these devices. You have to choose for yourself a developing a rhythm for your life that you don't always have to be connected, that you, you can give yourself permission to, to disconnect. You don't have to respond to every message. You do not have to make yourself available to your friends all the time of the day so that they're interrupting your quietness sometimes. You know, my daughter has just learned on her own. She, every day when she gets out of class at college, she turns off her phone for 15 minutes, just turns it off for 15 minutes. That's, a, that's not a long time. But she just discovered that for 15 minutes, I just want to sit and be quiet, sit on my floor and meditate just for 15 minutes with no noise around me. And if it gets interrupted by a text message, well then, you know, you're, we're all Pavlov dogs. You know, we're all going to answer it. You can't help it. We're conditioned. 
And so I, that's what I'm talking to your teenagers about tomorrow night, about the importance of just developing a rhythm for your life. And the same thing for you guys, you could go out with your kids sometime this week and just say, hey guys, we're all gonna turn our phones off, okay? Or let's all turn our phones on silent. And again, we're not, we're not mean about it with our kids. We even make a joke about it. We're out to eat and all of a sudden one of my kids, you know that they got a text message because they do that, you know, that hand reach, like they're reaching for a, you know, the revolver or something, you know? And I'll just go, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't pick it up. And just, and we just laugh about it, right? But it's again, reminding each other that we're here to focus our time on one another. When we're, when we're playing a board game together as a family, one person uses their phone to turn on Spotify or Pandora so they can play some music and everybody else puts their phones away. If you're watching a movie, everyone put your phone on silent, right? I mean, just, you know, again, just to focus our time and attention on one another, right? Any questions about that so far? Okay. All right, let's uh, move on just a little bit. Let's talk about some apps that our kids are using. We know that Instagram, uh, it's now, it's not 500 million. I really need to change that because it's in the billions and billions. Uh, Instagram is the most popular social media app used in the United States. As of three months ago, it's the number one most popular among girls. It's the second most popular, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the third most popular among guys. The number one among guys is uh, YouTube and number two is Snapchat. Uh, number three is Instagram. Among girls, it's Instagram and then Snapchat. So th- one of the problems I have with social media is one, no social media was created to keep children safe. So all social media is different in the way that they work. They're all trying to accomplish a similar goal, which they want, they want to keep you in their ecosystem. They want you to engage in their system and just stay on their app, you know, their platform and not use the others. So they keep introducing more and more capabilities so that you'll just stay with them. Does that make sense? So again, let's look at Instagram as an example of that. When Instagram came out about nine years ago, it was so that you could post photos of your life. That's all it was. It was an online pictorial of your life. And I think relatively speaking, we could all say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. We all post pictures on, Insta- I mean, on Facebook. And so you get just an online visual of your life. But then over time, they added more and more capabilities. So they added the, ca- the possibility of that you could now text back, have text messages with the people that follow you. So now they've introduced uh, you know, conversations and texting. Then they made it so that you could uh, post videos as well. Then they made it so that you could post photos and videos in your conversations with your friends and followers. Then they made it so that you could uh, erase the history of the conversations that you've had with your friends and your followers. Now, do you see what's happened? Like what once was a relatively safe, again, that's relatively speaking, uh, platform that a teenager could be on. And that if I, as a parent, actually check my kid's social media, I would know what's there. But now, if I check my daughter's phone, I don't even know if what I'm looking at is reality because I, I don't know if things have been deleted or I don't know if there's conversations that were sitting in private and then there was a timer set so they could disappear and I don't even know anymore. Did you see this? Again, I'm not saying that your kids shouldn't use Instagram. The problem is not Instagram. Instagram is being smart. Instagram is a company that made to create, to make money. Does that make sense? That's why they exist. They don't exist to, make, to connect our lives together. They exist to make billions of dollars. That's why all social media exists. 
And so they're doing their job of creating a platform and introduce more and more capabilities. So we'll say, oh, I want to use this one and this one only even more. But the problem is it keeps getting more and more unsafe potentially for our kids. Um, I actually, uh, my daughter, one of the reasons I have against social media too for kids is they don't have the life experience to understand that everyone is not who they say they are on social media. Just because you see their picture doesn't mean, just because you see 12 pictures of them on their Instagram doesn't mean that that's reality. Uh, and, and they don't know how this information they're sharing is being captured by other people and screenshotted by other people. Because teenagers learn, like on Snapchat, where on Snapchat, you know, that you can set a timer and, uh, of the information you send, and then after eight seconds, poof, it disappears. And now there's no record of it. Well, it took teenagers all of about, what, 30 minutes to realize that you can screenshot anything that someone sends you on Snapchat. You know, as a matter of fact, Snapchat even tells you now when someone screenshots it, you know? So your kid sends someone something and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't mean for you to save that. I thought it was just you know, between you and I. Well, now it's there forever because this person has just captured it. So uh, I was speaking at my daughter's school. Uh, she went to a, a private Christian school. There was a 15-year-old boy that connected with a beautiful 19-year-old girl from Oklahoma City ironically. And uh, so she found him, his Instagram, and she started following him. So he's a 15-year-old guy and she's a beautiful 19-year-old. So once she followed him, what's, what's he going to do? Follow her back. Exactly. Because, hey, she's a beautiful 19-year-old and she wants to follow me. Sure. So now he followed her back. So now they start having text messages back and forth in Instagram, and it turns into hundreds of messages, quick messages back and forth, and they get very comfortable talking to one another. And then the more comfortable they became, then the conversation turned to a sexual nature. Then they start having sexual conversations back and forth about what they would enjoy and what they would like to do with one another, until finally they start sending semi-nude photos back and forth. Then it turns into fully nude photos back and forth. And then it turns into videos, sexual videos. And then he gets uncomfortable, so he breaks off the, the relationship. And she keeps texting him saying, where did you go? And how come you're not talking to me anymore? And I miss our conversations. Until finally one day she sends him a message and says, if you don't keep talking to me, I'm gonna take all these pictures I have of you, meaning the sexual pictures, and I'm gonna post them on my Instagram. She's basically blackmailing him to continue this conversation. Well, what, what he didn't realize, and I don't think teenagers are stupid. I really don't. I, but I think teenagers don't have the life experience and they don't have the cognitive ability to, to rationally think through how a decision you make today could affect a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. Does that make sense? Like their brains are wired to live in the moment. And, and so... Uh, he didn't realize, you know, that, that what he's doing now, that she has all this stuff and now, you know, how, what she could do with it. The other thing that he failed to remember was that once she followed him and she, he followed her back, well, then now she could see all of his followers, all of his friends. So she just went and followed all of his guy buddies from his school. Because all, now, now once she followed them and, or sent them a follower request, they're going to go, oh, you're friends with my friend? Oh, yeah, sure. You must be okay. So now she's got a whole list of all the guys at his school. And one day as he's walking in the school building, three of his buddies stopped him and said, have you seen your Instagram today? 
And so what she did is she didn't post them on his Instagram. She just tagged his username. You know how this works, right? She posted these nude pictures of him as a 15-year-old, tagged his username. So now anyone else that follows him, it has the potential of popping up on their feed. And so his parents get called to the school because now it's getting passed around the school and his parents get called to the school. They got to file a police report. The police have to contact the FBI. This is distribution of child pornography. It doesn't matter that he said it or not. It's still child pornography. And this is about as bad as it gets. And so now the FBI have to go before a judge to get an affidavit to compel Instagram to tell them who owns this, this, this profile so they can get their son's pictures taken off of there. This, all this takes almost two weeks. All the time his pictures are out there. I mean, they don't tell me how many hundreds of times his photos are being screenshotted and saved to be passed around somewhere else. Well, then they finally find out after two weeks that it's not a beautiful 19-year-old. It was a 28-year-old man from Oklahoma City that he'd been talking with the whole time. Now, I know that mortifies you as a parent. And even some of you maybe even go, gosh, how stupid, how foolish could you be? Listen, he's a 15-year-old guy and it's a 19, beautiful 19-year-old girl. What is any 15-year-old boy gonna do? Listen, I'm not excusing it. I'm not even saying it's acceptable. I'm saying is that I understand how it happens. And if you don't understand, have an appreciation of how these things happen in your kids' lives, then you're not ready to walk into these situations because then you're just gonna walk into it as an authority figure and just try to fix it. If you don't understand, like if you don't understand the shame of a 15-year-old boy knowing that his body is being shared by other people in the school. I mean, you think girls feel uncomfortable with their bodies? Boys do not like anyone seeing their bodies. And now this is being passed around school and now all of a sudden mom sees it and mom's gonna step in and go, what? Oh, he already feels plenty enough embarrassed and shamed. Does that make sense? So we gotta we got be careful how we walk into these situations. Um, uh, I mentioned WhatsApp and Snapchat. I mentioned it as well about how Snapchat is, the, it's the second most popular app. You can set a timer and then the information disappears. Again, the problem I have with this is that teenagers get very comfortable in these relationships with one another online. I was speaking at a, another private school uh, to about 89 seniors and I was sharing a lot of these statistics with them. And I said, would you guys agree or disagree with like how many kids or how many people your age are sending nude photos and having sexual conversations and things like this? And then finally one guy said, I don't know anyone in our school that hasn't done this. And I said, why? Like, why would you do this? Especially as a girl, why would you have these conversations and send this information knowing that you can never get it back again? Like he now has these pictures of you and they're out there forever. And one of the girls said, well, it's not like it's the first conversation. She said, I think you just get used to talking to this person and you feel like you can trust them because you know, they're one of you. Like they're a teenager just like us. And so it's not like they're gonna hurt us. And you just feel like that you can, you, you, know, you, you know this person. And I, I completely agree. I mean, there is, a, there is a psychological component to social media that, commu- that, uh, that creates an intimacy level that's much quicker than, than someone face-to-face. Like you would never, none of us in this room, no teenager alive 
that I know of would ever sit down and meet a teenager and the very first words out of their mouth from a guy to a girl be, hey, send me some nude pictures of yourself. That would never, that just wouldn't happen. Like even any guy would have enough social couth to know that's not the first thing you're gonna say. But yet you put that same guy online and one out of three of all girls now say the first message they get from a guy is SN, which stands for send me some nudes. Like they're starting their human interaction as guys to girls by saying, you're not worth my time unless you show me your body first. I mean, you wonder why? This is why we need a hashtag MeToo movement. I don't mean that as a political statement. I mean it as a theological statement. It's because we're raising a generation of young men that don't know the value of women. And it's our jobs as mom and dads to help them understand this. Like I, your, your teenagers will tomorrow night will hear me say to them that guys, you never, never, never have a right to ask a woman to compromise her character so you can go gratify yourself later. And ladies, you, if a guy ever asks you to send a photo or video of yourself to him, he is not looking out for your best interest. He's only looking for a trophy. So um, anyway, another one of the, there's a whole new series of apps that are out now. One of them is called Whisper. Uh, another is called Secret. Uh, and these are anonymous apps. And the way that these apps work is there are no usernames there are no profiles. Everyone is an emoticon. Like everyone is assigned an anonymous picture. And so you might be the pine cone and you're the Christmas tree and I'm the lollipop. But the problem is no one knows who the pine cone or Christmas tree and lollipop are. The app just assigns you a picture and this is who you're gonna be on the app. Does it make sense so far? All right. And so when you download the app and these anonymous apps, uh, you have to give it access to your phone contact list. Now that should be an immediate red flag. Like, why do you need my contact list? Now, it's not looking for names. It doesn't, they don't store names. They're looking for phone numbers because that's how you register with the app. And it's gonna say, it may say to you, oh, we found three other people in your contact list who are also on Whisper. And they are, you know, the teddy bear and the gingerbread man and, you know, the lollipop. Again, but I don't know who those people are. I just know they're in my phone. Well, the FBI has concluded that over a half of all the information on these anonymous apps is of a sexual nature because we were not meant to live life anonymously. Like real relationships, relationships and integrity happen out in the open. That's what I've taught my children. If you're gonna have a biblical relationship with someone, it happens out in the open, not in private. There should never be a need to, oh, let me send you something, but don't share it with anyone else. Oh, then I probably shouldn't be sharing it to begin with. Because relationships happen out in the open, there should be no reason why you can't look at what's on my phone, right? And so um, these apps, again, uh, uh, on Whisper, um, you, you can set a radius on it and everything is by GPS. And so my wife and I, when it first came out, we got on there uh, just f- to see how the thing works. And you can set a radius from three miles down to, uh, down to 100 yards. And so we just had it set on a mile. And we're scrolling through and I could show you if you want to see screenshots I took of different people's profile. And there's one of them with, a, it looks like a, like a 16 year old girl on a swing set in a park. And what people do is they'll take stock photos and then put words over them. Kind of like you can, some of the apps, you can type words over pictures and call it a quote pick, you know, put a quote over it. And it's basically, this is your confession, 
or this is your desire. You're, you're sharing what you're looking for or what you're interested in or your deepest, darkest secret that you would never say out loud. And it, all it says was, I'm into younger girls. If you like older men, here's my number. Check me out. Now, by the way, he can say that. He's not broken a law. He has a first amendment right. He can say whatever he wants to say. He hasn't broken a law until he, someone contacts him and he sets up a meeting for the purpose of something sexual. Then he's crossed the line, a legal line. Does that make sense? So far, he's just going online and anonymously sharing his desires. And then my wife goes, wait a minute, what's the radius? And I said, one mile. She goes, that means it's someone within a mile of our house is posting this. Now, do you see what happens to our ability to live in our community? Is that now all of my neighbors become suspect? Like this is this is a damaging part about anonymity on social media, is it causes us to doubt everyone's integrity. Um, there's there's another app. Let me open it really quickly. I know there's a lot of parents of elementary kids here. How many uh, any middle schoolers parents in the room? Middle schoolers. All right, any parents of high schoolers in the room? Are you guys back in the back? You guys over here? All right, so there's an app out called After School. It's one of the top 10 uh, most used social medias right now. Um, is there a Lawton Academy of Art and Science? Okay, and uh, Lawton High School. Is there a Lawton Christian School? Okay, so I want you to just want you to use an example, Christian. Can you see that all three of those schools are listed on this app? Lawton Academy, Lawton High School, Lawton Christian School. Okay, they're all there. So what this app does is when you open up the app, it pulls up a list by GPS of all the high schools in your area. Now, I'm gonna say that uh, my, let's pick on Lawton High School. Jim, could you, could you see these numbers right there? Read out loud what that number is. 936, and what are the two words underneath it? So 936 students online, this app from Lawton High School. Now, I don't know how many kids go to Lawton High School, but I'm guessing that's probably what, maybe a third of them? Is that right? Maybe a third of the kids? Half? Half of the kids? All right, so let's say that I go to Lawton High School, so I, I selected Lawton High School. The next thing it's gonna do is it's gonna pull up, uh, it's gonna ask me about them in the class of 2019 all the way through 22. That's as far as it's gonna go is 22 because this is the first and only app ever created for high schoolers. Like the only people that can get on the app is someone that's in high school. So now if I say that I'm in the class of 2022, which makes me a freshman at Lawton High School, the nice thing it's gonna do is it's gonna open up my Instagram or my Facebook because I have to register one of those with the app. And it's gonna open up on my profile and it's gonna look under my birth date. We have to tell your birthday on, the, on, the, on social media. And it's gonna make sure that my birth date corresponds with someone that should relatively be a freshman at Lawton High School. The second thing it's gonna do is gonna look under education under my social media where it says, where's my education? And if it doesn't say Lawton High School, then it won't let me in that room because that room is only for freshmen at Lawton High School. Does that make sense? Then once I get in the room, there are no usernames, there's no profiles, there's no indicator of who posts what. It's just messages. There's not even anonymous emoticons. It's just messages that people are posting that are freshmen from Lawton High School. Now, I can tell you this just anecdotally. I could bet you hundreds of dollars that I would be right in this. That one of the things, the first things we'd find is you're gonna see pictures of like three girls that some guy has pulled off of their Instagram or Facebook account 
or taken in the hallway at school. And it's going to be pictures of three different freshman girls. And it's going to say, which one would you? So now let's imagine you're the parent of the ninth grade girl. And there's your daughter's picture. And it says 89. So now on Monday, you're 14, 15-year-old who feels uncomfortable in her own skin, who doesn't like her body type, who doesn't like her skin complexion, who doesn't like her hair, who doesn't like her zits, who just wishes she could be somebody else. Now she knows that she's got to walk in the hallway tomorrow and 89 guys in her grade have said, oh yeah, given the right opportunity, I'd do that. I'm not trying to be crass. But could you imagine how that psychologically and socially is going to affect that 14-year-old girl? Or, or let's flip it on the other side. Let's say that her picture's on there, but it says zero. Now, I know as a mom and dad, you're thinking, oh, thank you, God. That's what I like is zero. But again, what does your daughter want? She just, really? Like nobody? Like no one at this school likes me? Like, do you see, like either way, it's just bad. And, and uh, you'll, you'll see kids uh, sharing test answers, talking about the administration, talking about where the keg party is going to be this Friday night. Uh, uh, it's almost everything on there is either cheating, bullying, or sexualizing someone. And there's no way for us to get on it and know what's happening. The only way that you could get on there is to create a fake profile on Facebook or Instagram. And it's called after school. Yeah, and so again, you saw that, right, Jim? It was roughly half of all the kids from the high school on there. I I would go back and I would show, I think it said the Christian school, there was 98. So I don't know how many would go to the the Christian school or not. It's probably a small school. Um, So any questions about the apps so far? Anyone? Question about the apps? Is everyone breathing okay? No. Let's move forward. I talked about the bullying that happens on these apps. And uh, one out of three of all uh, teenagers that uh, are on social media say that they've been bullied on social media. Cyberbullying is defined uh, as saying of someone else on social media that I think that because of your skin color, because of your political beliefs, your spiritual beliefs, your body type, your disability, that I think that you're a lesser person than me. And I'm going to go on Instagram and tell everyone why I think so. And one out of three of all teenagers, some statistics say that 40% of all teenagers are now saying that this is happening to them. The people are just going on and saying the most vile, uh, heinous, just awful things. Kids to other kids because they feel like they can because no one's going to stop them. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, less than 10% of victims ever tell anyone. That means 90% of our kids that are being bullied online, 90% of them are just suffering in silence. When you're being cyber bullied, it makes you feel weak, small, inferior. It makes you feel foolish. It makes you feel like there's something wrong with you. And so because of that, 85% of all kids that are bullied said that their school didn't do enough to stop it. That's like saying adults in my life didn't do enough to stop it. And the reason is because we don't take it serious. Look at this, uh, 41% of victims said that they didn't know who identity was. If we go back to that first statistic, it said that, that 33% of kids have been bullied, yet only 8% of parents are concerned it's gonna happen to their kid. Can we agree? That's a big difference between the reality of our kids' lives, that one out of three of them are gonna be bullied, potentially four out of 10 of them, 
and yet only 8% of us think it's gonna happen to our kid? Less than one out of 10? I think because sometimes it's hard for us to realize that by the time our kids are 11 and 12 years old now, it's not 15 and 16. By the time they're 11 and 12 years old, they're making real world decisions with real world consequences. They're not living in the same world that we lived in as teenagers. I think for any grown-up to say to a middle schooler or high schooler today, oh, I know what you're going through is a gross overstatement. Because we really don't. I know we know what it was like to be a teenager, but we didn't have this stuff where you feel like every day you're having to watch your back because you have no idea what someone's gonna say about you or, or post about you or... or I do this every week and I, I, never, I never get numb to it. Um, uh, we're gonna have to skip this. There's a whole section about video games. Um, uh, probably just, just for time's sake, we're gonna have to skip some of this. Uh, uh, I'll just tell you really quickly. Uh, video games are the number one activity among adolescent boys in America. Over 90% of boys say they play video games at least once a month. Uh, uh, middle school boys said they play video games at least once every two weeks. Um, uh, more boys play video games and participate in athletic activities now. Uh, you know, we, we didn't want to demonize video games and say all video games are bad, especially with my son. The number one way he connected with his friends was playing video games. So we're like, as long as you guys are playing here in our house, then come on over. You can play video games. And that partly made our house a hangout house for all of his friends, you know. Um, but your son from the time your son is born until the time he graduates from high school, he's gonna play over 10,000 hours of video games. That's more than all the time he will spend in first through 12th grade in school, which really begs the question, who's teaching who? Really, where's his education coming from when he spends more time playing video games than anything academic? Um, you know, all video games are not the same uh, all video games have a rating. There's a whole chapter in the Tech Savvy Parenting book on understanding video game ratings and why they're rated what they are and the different terminology on the back of the box of what the different numbers and letters mean. So I just help you understand all of that. Uh, there's also a chapter on understanding the dynamics of uh, video game violence. And there's been over 98 studies done concerning the effects of uh, ex uh, long-term exposure to excessive violence in video games. Now, don't misunderstand that. There's no study that's been done that says that if your, your son plays a shoot 'em up game, that that means he's gonna become you know, a, a murderer. But what it does show is that of the 98 studies, 95 of them concluded that the uh, exposure to violence in video games has a temporal effect, a temporary effect on decision-making. Does that make sense? Which means like your son or daughter could be highly agitated after being a video, playing video games or they could snap at you and cuss you out or throw something at a sibling or get angry at themselves and smash something or, you know, because it, it has such an, a high rate of aggression that's created with stimulus, right? All, that, and all those endorphins, you know, raging through their bodies. So again, we just have to be careful well, so what we did with my son was we could say 30 minutes a day when he was younger, 30 minutes a day, we used a timer and you could play video games for 30 minutes a day and that's it. And then when he got older and he was playing with his friends, it was, you can play for an hour a day as long as you're playing with your friends. Like there's, there's a social component to it. You're not just locking yourself in the basement and playing games for three hours a day, right? Um, so uh, 
anyway, the, the, all games have a rating and uh, the majority of video games that are created are rated E for everyone, meaning like there's nothing objectionable in the content. The fewest games created are rated M for mature, but the ones that are, there are few that are rated M for mature outsell all the others put together. Do you understand this? What I'm saying, how I'm saying it? There's very few of them, but they outsell everything else. Now, just because the game is rated M for mature, that doesn't necessarily, all M rated games are not the same, just like all R rated movies are not the same. I have watched many R rated movies with my teenagers because I felt like that the movie had some redemptive qualities to it, like Saving Private Ryan. Does that make sense? It's rated R because of the violence and the language, but there's a lot of redemptive qualities that my son and I got to have a conversation about what does it mean to live for something greater than yourself? What does it mean to be committed to a team? What does it mean to live under authority? What does it mean to have a vision for your life? All those things we talked about through watching this R-rated movie. So I don't wanna say that all because of a rating, that means it's off limits, okay? So what it requires is I have to know why it's rated R or why it's rated M for mature, okay? So for instance, there's, there's one game, that was, uh, um, let me see, what was it called? Um, some of, one of you guys in here will know it. You're, you're shooting aliens and there's like alien green blood splatter and you're, Halo, thank you, Halo. Yeah, uh, so Halo, my son wanted to play Halo and he was, um, so now we know which guy owns Halo. Um, anyway, um, my son wanted to play Halo when he was like 15 years old. And so I had to research it and I was like, okay, you're killing aliens. Aliens are bad. Okay, go kill aliens, you know? And then he was like, Gad, can I play Grand Theft Auto? And I was like, oh, let me research it. Okay, so Grand Theft Auto, it's the number one best-selling video game of all times. It made $1.2 billion its first eight hours. The latest one went on sale, all right? So um, in the game, there was a... Uh, there was a guy who works at a GameStop and he was interviewing uh, parents that were coming in to buy this game for their nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds and asking them like, are you aware of the content of this game? And what's making you think it's okay to buy this for your child that's here with you? And they would say things like, well, my kid understands this, this is not reality. Or one dad said, well, my daughter, this is true. My daughter as long as I can spin it in an emotional, healthy context, then it's okay for her to play this. I'm like, I don't even know what kind of psychobabble you're talking about. That made no sense. And then one dad said, well, it's nothing my son doesn't see every day in life anyway. And I'm like, what neighborhood is your son growing up in? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I live in the hood. I, like, I live in the hood. And I, that doesn't happen in my hood, all right? So I don't know what neighborhood your kid's growing up in. So here's, here's some of the content from, from this video game. You, as, as a player, you can uh, waterboard another character. You can pull people's teeth out with their, you know, a pair of pliers. You can have sex with a prostitute. You can beat up women and children. You can run over, kill police officers. You can run over people. And the more, more violence, the more evil you are, the higher your score. Like, this is what's happened with a lot of the M-rated video games is that you remember when we were kids and we'd play video games, it was like good versus evil. And the point is to, you know, relinquish evil, I mean, to get rid of the evil, kill the evil. And now what's happened is we've turned our moral system upside down. So now the more evil you are, the higher your score, the more popular you are on the leaderboard. 
And again, I'm not saying that this is going to be long-term, but even my son, we just read through this. I, I researched it. I showed him this and I said, do you think this would be helpful for you in your relationship with your friends and in the kind of mind that I, don't want to, I know that you want to have that wants to honor the Lord? Do you think it would be helpful for you to play this game? And he goes like, no, I, I don't think so. Now, see, I didn't tell him you couldn't play it. All I did was present the information, present the truth, and I asked the right questions so the Holy Spirit can do his job of bringing conviction and change, All right? So um, any questions about the video games? We don't have a whole lot of time to cover the, the video games. Any questions about the games? All right, so let's move on real quickly. When your kids were little, they would go to websites like these where they'd go to Webkins and Club Penguin and Minecraft, and now it's Fortnite. You know, they go to all these games that are relatively safe for kids and middle schoolers. But then at some point in time, your, your eight, nine, 10 year old was like, I'm tired of going and playing kids' games. I want to go where my big brother, big sister hang out, or I want to go where my parents hang out. And so then they started getting on social media. And unfortunately, very few kids ever have a conversation with their parents or grandparents about their expectations or how to use social media in a healthy or safe way, how to be responsible with what you're doing on social media. Uh, there was a, for our kids, they're not even gonna go to websites though. They're just gonna go to their phones because their phones have everything, they, all the social media they need right there. Matter of fact, some of the social media now doesn't even work with websites. It only works on your phone. Like on Instagram, you know, you can't post online. You can view online, but uh, on your computer, but if you want to post things, you got to be on your phone. So uh, anyway, there was a, a, uh, a survey done, uh, or every one of these required that you have to be 13 years old to use them, that you can't be under 13 and be on social media. Here it is, this is from Instagram. It says, you must be 13 years old to use Instagram. If you go to Tumblr, it says, you have to be 13 years old. If you go to Facebook, it says, you can't be on here if you're under 13 years old. And they make it really difficult for children under 13 to sign up. Because what you do is at the bottom, you have to scroll. And at the bottom of the screen, there's a box. And you have to check it. And the box says, I promise all this information is true about me. That's a pretty high bar of accountability right there. You know what I'm saying? Now, the reason why these companies require you to be 13 years old is because of the COPA Act, C-O-P-P-A. It stands for the Child Online Protection and Privacy Act. It's a federal law that requires that technology companies are not allowed to ask for personal information from anyone under the age of 13. Basically, our government has decided a child has a right to privacy. And so if your kid gets online, no one's supposed to be tracking what they're doing or posting. But the problem is social media was created for teenagers and grownups, not for children. So the only way you can get on there is to lie to say that you're, yes, you are at least 13 years old. Does that make sense? So now basically your 11-year-old is making this technology company complicit in breaking a federal law because there's no way for them to weed this stuff out if a nine or 10-year-old is on Instagram. So there was actually a study done by Consumer Reports. They interviewed over 5,000 of their subscribers, specifically about Facebook, but anecdotally, we could apply it to other social media. And this is what they concluded, that roughly two out of 10 of all 10-year-olds are already on social media. One out of three of all 11-year-olds, over a half of all kids by the age of 12 are already felons. I'm just joking, but they're, 
helping other people to break the law, but they're already on social media. Now, here's the big problem I have with that is not the kids asking to be on social media. Look at the bottom number. The bottom statistic says that 88% of all parents said it was okay for their kid to lie in order to get on social media. 67% of parents created the profile for their kid that's under the age of 13. Again, the, the, the issue here is really two. One, I believe personally that if you are creating the profile for your 11-year-old to get on social media simply because they're telling you, I'll be responsible, mom, I won't do anything stupid, and because you're tired of them bugging you because they're the only one on their baseball team not on Instagram or their soccer team not on Instagram, and you're like, okay, fine, you can be on there, but don't do anything stupid, okay? I think that you've just undermined your own authority. Because you just communicated to your kids that obey me, listen to me, but I'll break the rules as mom or dad when it suits me. And what suits me is I'm tired of you bugging me. So don't do anything stupid, okay? But the problem is your, your 10-year-old, 12-year-old doesn't have the life experience to know what's gonna happen with all of this information out there about themselves. There was a, um, think of, for your kid, think of, uh, of their phone. Social media is like this web that keeps their whole life connected. The average teenager is on five, has 500 connections on social media. Now, tomorrow night, I'll ask your, your high school or middle schoolers, how many friends do you have in the real world? Like not on social media, but in the real world. Because the typical American teenager says they have between six and eight real friends. Not acquaintances, but people that know them, know them, that they can turn to in need six to eight friends in real life, but they're connected to over 500 people online, which is why I tell every teenager, you have two reputations. You have a real world reputation. That's the eight friends that, you, that know you in the real world. And you have a digital reputation. That's the 500 people that you're giving access to your life to out there. Do you see what's happening? Is that if your kid is on social media at nine, 10, and 11, 12, that by the time they graduate from high school, there are six to eight years worth of information about your kid out there. And it's not just on one platform. They're on, on average on six different platforms. Now, now I, I promise, like those, who is it, mom in the back? You said you had a four and six-year-old, right, right? Like, was that you, four-year-old? Yeah, six-year-old? Six and eight, yeah. So by the time your kids get to be in middle school, there will be no Snapchat. You know, I mean, these, most of social media has about an eight-year cycle. I mean, think about this. We don't use MySpace anymore, do we? Yeah, but the problem is none of us canceled our MySpace accounts. There are orphaned out there still begging you somehow to come back and, you know, update it. All that information from eight years ago about what bands and concerts you went to, it's still out there. And the same thing's going to happen with our kids is they're going to go to the next platform or the next new social media that's created. And all the stuff about them is still going to be out there. Every, everything they thumbs up, everything that they liked, every group that they joined, everything that they retweeted out is all going to be out there for someone to see. Uh, over 80% of all kids on social media say they have posting regrets. You know what a posting regret is, right? Yeah, you just ask Kanye West or our president, they'll tell you about posting regrets. You know, I'm like, please just put down the Twitter. Uh, 
Yeah, a potion of regret is basically something that you sin and then you wish you could take it back. But one of the things I'll tell your teenagers tomorrow night is when it comes to social media, there's no delete, there's no do-over, and there are no take-backs. There's no delete, there's no do-over, and there are no take-backs. That you can delete it, you can even cancel your account, but all that information has already been screenshotted and shared. All of it's being stored. Did you know that you could cancel your Facebook account today and all that information is still there? Snapchat, Snapchat, one of their big things that they used, to, they used to say when they came out is that we don't store any of your personal information on our servers. All those things that you send and have a timer and eight seconds, poof, it disappears. Then guess what happened two years ago? Their servers got hacked and terabytes worth of information were leaked on the, inter- on the internet. And here it is. That, and then now people are going, well, I'm not using this anymore. Not because I don't care about you storing my information, but because you lied about it. Just be upfront with the fact that all, yes, you're storing all this information about me. And unfortunately, their regrets aren't things like my mom is so mean. Their regrets really have to do with their identity. That roughly four out of 10 of all teenagers admit to sending and receiving sexual messages back and forth on social media. Now, I'm not as surprised by the fact that 40% of them are having sexual conversations, but we also know that 25% of them are having these conversations with complete strangers. It means they have no idea who this person is. They've never met them in the real world, but one out of four of all teenagers admit to having these conversations about their sexual desires or interests with this person. And 12% of them set up a face-to-face meeting with the stranger. Now, I know, again, you're thinking, that's just crazy. It's just stupid. But see, our kids, even teenagers, they don't have a danger radar. You know, we were created for, it doesn't matter. I mean, how many times you tell a six-year-old, don't take candy from the man, don't get in this van, don't walk to the curb. You, we've all seen how many 2020 specials there are out there, Dateline specials, and kids always do it because they don't have that life experience to understand. They're gonna assume that someone is who they say they are. So they end up having these sexual conversations, but it's not just conversations, it's visual as well. One out of five of all guys, one out of four of all girls admit to sending and receiving nude photos of themselves or other people on social media. One out of four of all girls admit to doing this. Now this came from a survey, it was done by the Center to Prevent Teen Pregnancy. They interviewed almost 6,000 teenagers about their social media usage in conjunction with their sexual identity and interest. And they asked a follow-up question to the girls. These are all teenagers, which is why? Like, why would you send a photo or a video of yourself to someone else and you could never get it back again? The number one answer, 69% of girls said to be fun or flirty that the reason why they were sending nude photos of their body to another guy was to flirt with him. Can we agree, mom? We were redefining fun. We were redefining flirty. That, I mean, think about when you're in middle school, how would you have flirted with a boy? Maybe, you know, I don't know, pull his hair in the cafeteria line, put a note in his locker. I like you. Do you like me? Check yes, check no. Maybe drop a book in the hallway and see if he picks it up. Those are all innocent. That's flirting is innocent. And now almost seven out of 10 of all girls are saying the way that they flirt is to go in the bedroom, maybe just unbutton one button, 
take 84 selfies till they finally find the one that makes them feel good about themselves. Hey, this is just between you and I, okay? I'm trusting you. Don't share this with anybody else. Oh, I would never do that. And so what's gonna be the answer? When, when she sends this picture of her body to the sky, what's the response gonna be back? What is he gonna say to her? Moms, what's he gonna say? You're so what? Wow, you are so hot. You got a 16-year-old guy saying to a 14-year-old girl, you are so sexy. Moms, can we agree? This 14-year-old does not have, she doesn't even understand her own body yet well enough to know what sexy means. She only has a perception from her culture of what sexiness, hotness is. And, but, but the problem is now he is speaking into her soul because she has a God-given need to be loved, a God-given need to be desired because we all are. That's how God's wired us as people. We're wired for community. We're wired for relationships. We all want to be wanted. And so now he's meeting this need in her life in a way that God never intended. So let's just be logical. What's gonna happen to the next picture? Because there would be another picture. Why? Because she feels affirmed. This is logic, isn't it? Now she feels valued. So maybe just one more, more button. Maybe just a little bit higher on the skirt. And you see how quickly this gets carried out of hand. And so I... Um, there was a, uh, I was speaking at a private school in Middle Tennessee a couple of years ago. And there was a guy and girl, they started dating their junior year. This girl had gone to the school since, her, since she was in kindergarten. And this guy got, started going in high school and he's on the football team. She was a cheerleader. They started dating. They dated their whole junior year. Well, the longer they dated, the more intimate they became. That's how God's, that's how, that's how relationships work. And so they, they, they dated a whole year and they became very intimate. And part of the intimacy was, hey, when are you gonna send me some pictures? No, I mean like good pictures, just between you and I. I love you. You can trust me. These are just for me. So she began to send him dozens of pictures back and forth of her body so he could enjoy. And then after their junior year, she broke off the relationship and just said, hey, nothing, nothing wrong with you. I just feel like I need to focus on my studies, get ready for college, and I don't need to be in a relationship anymore. Well, now he feels jilted. He feels like everyone at school is gonna know that she broke off the relationship and he feels angry. So he comes up with a great idea. And his idea is, I'm gonna take all these pictures on my phone and put them on my computer. Then I'm gonna open up Photoshop and I'm gonna stylize them to look like playing cards. Then I'm gonna print them off my home computer and they took him to school and he and a bunch of guys played poker in the locker room with pictures of her body. Because, hey, you can trust me. And now this girl who had gone to the school for 12 years couldn't finish her senior year. Now, I, I know, you know, especially with ladies, you're thinking, hey, what, you know, what about the guy? This is, it takes two. Well, yeah, he was punished as well because since he was 18 years old, this wasn't just a, oops, I, I didn't know I couldn't do this. This was willful intent to publicly humiliate her. And now he's on the registered sex offender list, potentially for the rest of his life. And that is a high price to pay for one foolish mistake for both of them. Do we agree? 
You know, because our kids have to, your children need to understand that the things that they post on social media have real world consequences. And it's up to us to prepare them for this, to help them walk through this experience. I think what's happened is by the time our kids are like 14 and 15 years old, they've seen so much of this, they've become numbed to it. My daughter, one day, I showed her a picture. I actually look at my kids' social media when they were in middle school and high school. I checked it. And so one day I'm looking at her Instagram and it was a picture of her and on her Instagram. And every day she would post pictures, just selfies. And it was a picture of her uh, I could tell she was in the bathroom and she would always post pictures of doing her hair and crazy hairstyles and her friends would like rate her hairstyles and stuff. And it was just very innocent. But I could tell that she had gotten out of the shower because I could see just a few inches of a towel right here in the picture. And, and I said, hey, sweetie, um, I, I think you might want to delete this picture. And she goes, why? And I say, well, I, I can tell that you were in the bathroom when you took it and I can see a little bit of your bath towel here. And she goes, oh, okay. And I said, well, let me help you understand what a guy's thinking. I said, so are you connected to any guys at school? And she said, yeah. I said, are you connected to any guys at youth group at church? And she said, yeah. I said, so when they see this picture, they're not looking at your hairstyle. They're just wanting to know what's under the towel. She was like, dad. And I said, I'm not saying they're bad guys. I don't think they are. I don't think they're creeps. That's just how God's wired us as men as we're wired visually. And so they're looking at the most appealing part of the photo for them and it's not your hair. And then, she, and then her response, she goes, dad, I've just seen so much of this before I was even 13. I think I'm just numb to it. I thought, what a, what a horrible thing to become numbed to, to someone else's perception of your sexuality. And the guys that think that they could just say these things. And I took my daughter with me two years ago. I spoke in Singapore at a national conference where I, I did this whole presentation. There were 680 like CEOs, CFOs, big wigs from all over the country at this conference. And I took my daughter with me and she stood in front of the whole leaders in this whole country in Singapore and talked about what it is like to be a female teenager on social media and to be sexualized every day of your life. And she said, because I am. And I thought, my daughter didn't ask for this. She didn't welcome this. She came on one day and she had her, her Instagram open and she goes, dad, look at this. And it was, all it was was a picture of her face. And, and a guy at her school made a snarky sexual comment about my daughter's face. She goes, dad, look at this. I said, sweetie, he's lost the right to communicate with you online because he no longer honors you as a woman. He is not worth your time, delete. And she does. Oh, she gets joy out of it, matter of fact, now. She loves deleting guys on social media that aren't worth her time. She's like, I don't have time for this kind of immaturity. I'm a woman. Like, word for word, what she will say. I'm thinking, yes, because we've empowered you, you know, to be that kind of a woman. You know, I, uh, let, me, let me close with this. Just a couple of minutes we have left that um, I, our kids have been exposed to so much sexual content that they've just become numb to it. And we talked about the photos and the videos and how much of it, you know, that they see and why that they're doing it. And, and I, I think that they, they, for our kids, there is almost a numbness to digital pornography as well. And just expressing themselves sexually that our, that social media has shifted the sexual conversation for our kids that they're exposed to things and having conversations about things that they really don't even understand. That 93% of boys 
two out of three of all girls are gonna watch digital pornography before they leave your home. Look at this, two out of, 83% of all guys are watching group sex videos online. Like this is how they're learning about sexual intercourse and activities is by watching group sex videos online. There was a study that came out two years ago from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And there was a psychologist where she was allowed to go into two different middle schools and interview uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade boys. And as she talked to them about digital pornography and photos and things like this, she said across the board, almost it was in groups. Almost every boy would say, oh, I have a friend who's seen that. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I've seen that. You know, I have a friend who's seen that and I have a friend who does that. And then as she spent hours with these boys, she, her conclusion was that over half of all middle school boys are struggling with sexual performance anxiety. Now, let me help you understand what that means, that sexual performance anxiety is, is a legitimate disorder where you feel like that you're not able to sexually perform or satisfy your partner adequately. Does that make sense? So you're either afraid of sex or you don't want to be sexually intimate, whether you're married or just in a dating, whatever it is, you know, this is what sexual performance anxiety is. But the problem is these boys aren't sexually active. And her conclusion through interviewing them, all these boys for hours, is that they're watching so much porn that they're now become afraid of sex, that they're having stress and anxiety about future sex because of what they're watching on these videos. There was a study that came out of Harvard University. Now, I love this one because this shows that this isn't a Bible thing. This is science. There was a study that came out of Harvard University about four years ago. They took uh, over 200 uh, teenage guys all the way up through post-college who through interviews ahead of time had already said that they regularly watch porn on their smart devices right? That they're admitting that this is a normal part of my life is to watch digital pornography. So then they gave all 200 of them CAT scans of their brains and compared their brains to a normal adolescent male brain. And they showed that those, among those that are regularly watching porn, that the neurons of the brain, that the neurons are the pathways, the connective tissue of the brain that form memories. Like for instance, you don't have to figure out how to ride a bicycle. You just get on it and you know how to do it because you learn when you're in five and six years old. You have that memory in your brain. Does that make sense? You just know things because of these memories. Your neurons have done that for you. And what it's shown is that in the CAT scans of adolescent boys that regularly watch porn, the neurons are twisted. Like it legit, scientifically messes up the brain. This is not us standing up in front of church saying the Bible says don't do this. This is science saying, you wanna mess up your brain, go look at porn. And it's shown that it takes up to five years for those neurons to basically rewire themselves properly. So can you imagine what happens if you're a you know, 10, 11, 12 year old boy who starts looking at porn, then you get afraid of porn, but it's still part of your everyday appetite is to look at porn. And now your brain is messed up so you don't understand relationships and intimacy the same way any longer. You see how this is working? Like psychologically, emotionally, relationally, how it's messing up our kids. 
You know, if you want to know whether or not your child might be looking at porn, answer these questions. Do you live in an urban community? Uh, are, are you middle class or above? Did you go to college? Are you politically conservative? Are you theologically conservative? Do you live in a gated community? Do your kids go to private school? Are your kids homeschooled? Because for everything that you say yes to, it increases the likelihood that your kid's looking at porn. Now, here's the problem is that we would look at those and we would say, but those are all things I want for my kids. And there's nothing wrong with wanting those things for our kids. But the problem is the more that we want those things, we have to give up something else. And if we wanna be above average income, if we want our kids to go to private school, if we, we wanna go volunteer in the community, if we wanna be involved in all these different things, we gotta give up time with our kids. And the more time we give up with our kids and raising our kids, we're letting the world raise our kids, the more their appetites are being changed. Do you see this? We're gonna cheat something. We're gonna cheat somewhere. And I just encourage you with the time that you have to say no to other things so you have time to say yes to your kids. It is such a short amount of time that we have. I mean, that window, every day of your life, your window of influence is shrinking with your kids. So say no to other things. You have time to say yes to them. My... um. My, my son was 14 years old. The first time that we were, he and I, we started having conversations with our kids when they were nine years old about digital pornography. We didn't call it porn. They're nine, they don't know what that means because porn is really not the issue. Really the issue is purity. So we began to talk about what does it mean to have a pure heart and a pure mind? Why do we treat people the way that we do? Why do you not touch people certain ways? Why do you not say certain things to girls? Because you wanna have a pure heart and a pure mind. Why do you not present your bodies in certain ways to people? Because we wanna have a pure heart and a pure mind. And we're having all these conversations with nine, 10 year olds in our house. And then my son, when he got to be uh, 12 years old, I said to him, Bailey, this year, everything is changing for you. Like all of a sudden you're going to start growing up and certain parts are growing out. And you're going to grow hair all over your body. Like your emotions are going to change. Your attitudes are changing. Your friendships, everything's going to change this year. And I said, one day you're going to go to church and, and you're going to be sitting there minding your own business. And some girl you've known your whole life is going to walk up and sit next to you. And she's just going to say, hey, Bailey. And you're going to feel like your whole body's on fire. Like what is going on? I was like, and that's okay. I said, like, God's just taking you through puberty. It's not an embarrassing thing. It's not an awkward thing. I'm never gonna make fun of you kind of a thing. I said, it's okay. I said, but part of going through puberty is sometimes you're gonna think to yourself, I don't like how this feels. I need to get, a, I need to get my phone and go to my bedroom by myself. I need to get my, my parents' laptop and go to the bathroom by myself. I said, and when you do that, now you're taking this desire, these emotions, these feelings in your body and mind. And now you're using these pictures, these images to enjoy yourself, to get rid of that feeling. And then you've crossed the line. I said, you're gonna want answers as to what's happening in your body. And you can go to Google and you can ask Google for answers. The typical child's first exposure to digital pornography is between the ages of nine and 11. Most kids see porn for the first time between nine and 11. And most children is through Google search. They weren't looking for porn. They were looking for answers to something else. Most, most of the time, they were looking for answers to something they heard at school. Someone said the word lesbian at school. That happened to my daughter. My daughter was nine years old and she was like, I don't know what a lesbian is. So she typed in lesbian and guess what came up on the screen? 
You know, my son, the first time he saw porn, he was watching cartoons on YouTube. I was so angry. Not angry at him at all. I was really angry at myself because I felt like I set him up because he came to me and asked me if he could watch cartoons and then I left the room. And then, so we went through this whole process with our kids starting at nine, just helping them understand how to honor God with their mind and their body and their words. And, and then when my son was 14 years old, we were writing to youth group together. And he said, dad, can we have one of those conversations that's just between you and I, and we don't have to tell mom about it? And so I pulled the car over in the Taco Bell parking lot and he's given me permission to share this story with you. And he began to tell me about what he looked at on my computer two days earlier. Now, what he didn't know was that I already knew. And I was angry at myself because I didn't have software on my computer at the time because it was just me. I'm the only one that uses my computer, but he had used it to do some school project and they did an internet search and they clicked on a link and the link took him to a website and then one website led to another website, led to another website, led to videos. And so I, 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 you know, all of this shows up, popped up on my computer history. And so I see it and I knew it wasn't me. I knew it had to be him. And so I just, I just needed a couple days. And the reason why I needed a couple days is I just needed to get my own heart ready for this. Because if I'd gone to him as soon as I'd found it, I'd gone, I would have gone to him the way some of you in this room maybe have gone to your kids when you found it on your home computer or your phone or something like that. And you go to your kids and you say things like, is this what you brought into my house? Do you know what kind of people look at this stuff? You know what this says about you when you look at this? And then you've just brought shame into the equation. And please, if you don't do anything, if you don't listen to any of my advice all day long, please hear this. God never, never, never shames his sons and daughters. Shame is the most powerful tool of our spiritual enemy. It's what happens when, when we are outside of God's boundaries. The Holy Spirit comes to us and says, danger, danger, Will Robinson. You were not made for this. This is not who you are. Because John 10, 10 says that you are the light of the world. And then all of a sudden God brings our sin into the light. And Romans chapter four tells us that when we see our sin for what it is, we repent and run back to the father again because we want to live in the light. And God restores us. But, but when the enemy comes to us and makes us feel shameful, we go into the darkness because we don't want anyone to see what we're doing. We gotta be, we gotta be really careful when you, when you walk into these delicate issues with your kids that you don't bring shame into it because mom, it will be the last time he ever hugs to you about this. He, will, he or she will just shut down. And so I just needed two days just to pray, God, would you get my heart ready? Would you let me feel the weight of this? And so then we sit down and we start talking and I said, Bailey, I want you to understand. This is almost word for word, my conversation. You can use this yourself later in the future if you want. I said, Bailey, I want you to understand you're not the only boy dealing with this. Every other boy at church is dealing with it too. 
you're just the only one that was brave enough to tell his dad. That speaks really highly of you. I said, unfortunately, this is not gonna be the last time this happens because now the enemy has got your attention and he's gonna come at you again and again and again because he knows that he can. He's put his foot in the door and his foot is really hard to move. I said, but I promise you two things. I said, one, I promise I will never embarrass you. I will never shame you. I said, I always want you to come talk to me. I said, and number two, no matter how many times you fall into this pit, I said, I choose to jump in the pit with you because more than being my son, you're my brother in Christ to my 14 year old. You're my brother in Christ and you and me are a band of brothers and I'll always have your back. I refuse to let you ever fight this by yourself. And we prayed together. We reestablished some new boundaries and then we went to church. We didn't talk about it the next day. We didn't revisit it every other day. I don't want him to feel like this is a defining thing of his life. This is who he is now. But periodically we, we revisit it and we talk about it. And all I need to say to him, my son's in college now. And so he'll call me and we'll talk on the phone. And all I say is, I'll say, hey, Bailey, how are you doing? And he knows what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about how the weather is. And he'll just say, I'm doing really good, dad. And then now he says to me, hey, dad, how are you doing? I love it that he gets it, that he's not just my son, that he's my peer, that we're two men going through this thing together. Your kids need to know that you're in it with them through the glorious times and the gory times that you will never leave their back, that they need to know, they need to hear you say more than any other grown-up that you ever meet in your life, I love you unconditionally, I'm for you, I'm for your good, I'm for your success. I've got your back. And they need to hear it over and over again because in those times when they crash and burn, they're gonna feel like they shamed you and they shamed your family. They're gonna feel like they're never gonna be the same again. I know this is hard stuff, guys. I know it is, but I know that you can do this. And the reason why I know it is this is God has made two promises to you. One, he promised that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Yes. That means I don't have to be afraid. I may not know the answer. I may not have the right words. I may not know the right touches. I don't know what, how to handle this, but I don't have to be afraid because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And number two is this, is that God made a promise to you in Philippians chapter one, he said, I promise that he who has begun a good work in you will, will not stop until I send my son back again. So what that means is that every day of your life, if you've given your life to Jesus, every day of your life, he is at work in you. Like you might be the dad that broke your promise to your kid and didn't take off, all work off, off work early yesterday to come play ball with your kid. Hey, guess what? It's okay because tomorrow you'll be a little bit more like Jesus. 
that you might be the mom that lost your cool and yelled at your kids this morning. Guess what? Tomorrow, you get to be a little bit more like Jesus. And it has nothing, nothing to do with your biblical knowledge, how long you've been following him, how much you've given to your church, how many Bible verses you've memorized. It has even nothing to do with your obedience. It has to do with one thing only, and that's a promise that God has made to you because of what his son did on the cross. And he says, boom, it's finished, it's done. Now I'm totally devoted to you and will always be at work in you. And I'm telling you guys, some days that's the only thing I can cling to. Because sometimes I just feel like a failure. Some days I just feel like, God, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep saying these things that I don't want to say? And why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? Isn't that really what Paul said in Romans chapter seven? Well, you know what? I can cling to the promise that tomorrow I'll be a little bit more like Jesus. And you will too, Jim. Amen.